Let's pray together as we unfold the scriptures. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 2 and 3, but not the whole thing. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then not printed in the program, but I'm going to skip down and read again, starting in Genesis 14. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And now Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now I'm skipping down to verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. We are considering creation this summer. The first couple chapters of Genesis, in fact, the past three weeks, it's taken us three weeks to get through really Genesis 1. We didn't even really finish, but we got to move on. We're thinking about the very beginning when God made everything. 
And I hope that you're seeing through this little summer series that creation is not just something that's academic, something for us to fill our heads with interesting trivia knowledge, but it actually, when we start to understand what God is doing, we start to understand our purpose on earth as well. The basic story goes like this, that God has made a beautiful and orderly home for his people. And he calls us to join him in his work of making the earth a beautiful and ordered place and to work against the chaos and the disorder of the world. We're going to start thinking more about that next week and the week after that as we consider what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 teach us about work and our work. But we've mostly been on page one of our Bibles. And last week we spent a little bit of time on page two. This morning we're going to spend some time in page two and then we're going to jump way, way ahead until page three. And we're going to ask really one simple question. If God made the earth beautiful and ordered, and yet we don't have to look very far to to see the world around us and realize there's a lot of it that's not beautiful and ordered. In fact, it's chaotic and disordered. Where did that chaos and disorder come from? That's the basic question that we're asking. Now, the Bible calls the word, the, the word, the biblical word for that chaos and disorder is sin. And sin is, is an incredibly unpopular word nowadays. People get upset sometimes when you use the word sin. You know, for the past, so I looked it up, for the past 18 years, Google has been working on a project called Google Books. And they're doing with books what they're also trying to do with all the knowledge and all the web pages on the internet. So they're trying to scan every single book that has ever been printed. And they're trying to create a digital archive of every single book that has been printed so that you can search Google Books and you can search all the printed literature in the world, which is an incredibly ambitious project. One of the upshots of this project, and they're making some headway, I don't know how far along they are, is that you get to see how the use of language changes and evolves over time. So along with this project, a little subset of the Google Books project is called the Google Ngram Viewer. And I don't know what Ngram means, but I know what the tool does. And I've gone in and played with it. You can type in any word, and it will tell you how many times did this word appear in printed literature over time. So we can see, for instance, if you type the word war, you can see that it wasn't used all that much. And then in 1917, it spiked. And then it goes down again in 1944 again. The word war spikes in printed literature, and we don't have to think very hard about why. Or you can find out interesting trivia, like the fact that before 1900, the word therapy was almost never used in printed literature. And now it's used a lot in printed literature. The word sin occurs today in printed liter- modern printed literature somewhere between four and five times less frequently than it did just 200 years ago. We used to talk a lot more about sin, but even the use of the word has fallen into disfavor. We don't like to talk about it. The simple reality is, from a Christian standpoint, if we never talk about sin, then we never get to talk about grace. So this morning, we're going to think very specifically about sin. And we're going to let it lead us to thinking about grace. But we actually have to start a step before sin, and we have to start with a blessing. 
Now, in the Bible, to bless somebody is to fill them up. And blessing is inherently a generous act. When you bless somebody, you are giving them something. And you can fill somebody up all, all sorts of different ways. You can, you, can, you can give material goods. You can give them life. You can just fill them up with, with your words. You can encourage them. Blessing can have an emotional component to it. And we see God's blessing. This is what we've really spent the past three weeks considering. We see God's blessing all throughout creation as he generously gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but let's just refresh ourselves just with day three. If you, if you remember day three of creation, this is page one of our Bibles. On day three, God separates the water from the water and causes dry land to appear. And remember, water, especially in the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible, symbolizes chaos. So God is creating a safe place, a safe home to grow up in the middle of the chaos around us to put man in a safe and hospitable home. But he doesn't just create dry ground. Then it says, very specifically, he creates vegetation. And it's oddly specific here. God says that he creates seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees, which, by the way, is before he creates humans. So that by the time he does create humans, there is already not only a safe home for them to live in, but there's food for them. That's good hospitality. God is a generous, hospitable God. He gives us a safe home. He gives us food. And it says, Genesis tells us that God created humans and then blessed them. In fact, when you look at the whole scope of creation, all of Genesis 1 and 2, you see this pattern. God gives and we receive. God gives, he blesses, and I'm using giving and blessing as more or less synonyms. God gives, and our task is simply to receive. And God is not a stingy God. Notice, like, he doesn't just give just enough for us to get by and then leave us wondering if we're going to have enough. Think back to the seed-bearing fruit. It actually says he gave every kind of seed-bearing fruit. There's a diversity in even the kinds of food that he gives us so that when you get sick of having mangoes, you can have honeydew. And when you get sick of having honeydew, you can have, I don't know, plums, whatever fruit it is that you like. And when you get sick of that, like, there's incredible diversity in what he provides for his people. And our role is simply twofold to receive God's blessing and then to pass on God's blessing to the rest of creation, to pay it forward, if you will. We're going to talk more about that passing on and paying it forward next week when we start talking more about the work and the work that God calls us to, even in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This week, we're, we're thinking about this. What happens when instead of receiving God's blessing we try to take it. There's a subtle difference, but it's very important, between receiving and taking. And this is what the Bible calls sin. You could define sin a hundred different ways, probably more. But this morning, we're thinking about it through this lens, that sin is essentially when instead of receiving from God, we take. 
And the fundamental difference between the two is this, that when you take something, you are in control. When you receive something, you're really out of control. You're dependent on somebody else. And we don't like it when somebody else is in control. Here's how God paints the picture of receiving versus taking. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. There are two trees in the middle of the garden that have names. One of them is called the tree of life. One of them is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a mouthful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stumble over that at least once this morning. I promise you. And then he tells Adam, this is chapter 2, verse 16 again, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. They may not eat from that tree. They may eat from any other tree, including the tree of life, by the way. God never prohibits them eating from the tree of life. And things go well until a serpent enters the scene, stage left, and has a little conversation with Eve. And the conversation, if you really start paying attention, it's, we don't have time to get into these, but it's full of misinterpretations and misunderstandings and, and some right, downright manipulation. But let's just look at verses five and six for now. Let me read those again to you. Here's what the serpent tells Eve. God knows that when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Quick side note, Adam doesn't get a pass here. We don't get to pin everything on Eve. He was right there with her and said and did nothing. The burden falls just as squarely on Adam's shoulders as it does on Eve's. Now remember, a blessing must be received. It cannot be taken. You cannot take a blessing. You can't, you can't manufacture one for yourself either. And Adam and Eve, in taking that fruit and in eating it, Scripture says, what does Scripture say they were trying to do? They were trying to become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. They didn't want to receive the knowledge and the discernment from God. They needed to be able to decide for themselves. You see, all throughout the Scriptures, God, Scripture is clear, God is the judge of what is good and what is evil. God gets to make those decisions and those judgments. And our call, he calls us to live within his parameters for what is good and what is not. But instead of receiving from God, we take the right, or so we think, to decide what is good and what is evil ourselves instead of trusting him. We take it upon ourselves. Maybe it's because we don't like God's definitions. 
Maybe it's because we, we just don't want to let God decide. We don't like being out of control. Maybe it's because we think he's just taking too long. Whatever the reason is, instead of waiting and receiving and trusting and obeying, we take. Instead of waiting for the right time as God judges when the right time is, we jump into action because surely he cannot have meant for us to wait this long. Instead of trusting that God, when God says this is good, we think that can't possibly be good. Or when God says that thing is evil, we think that can't possibly be. How could a good God prohibit that? And so we take the knowledge of good and evil upon ourselves instead of receiving it. Now, like I said, there are a hundred different ways to parse out sin and describe what it is. But, but think about what does it mean to take instead of receiving? I can think of two examples. I mean, there's hundreds of all, all sin you can, you can look at through this rubric. Let's just consider two. One, what happens when we take credit for someone else's work? Maybe that's explicitly. Maybe, maybe you've been in a work meeting. Maybe somebody at work has taken credit for your work. Maybe you did a... You did a really great job on a project and then your boss turned around to his boss and said, look what I did and doesn't mention you. Maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's just something like plagiarism. Maybe it's just failing to give credit where credit is due. What's going on? We're taking instead of receiving. There's one more, here's one more example. And again, there are hundreds, but one more. What happens when we're not generous with our money? like God calls us to be. The Bible calls it greed. That's a strong word. Even the word kind of makes our skin crawl, I know. And the thing about greed is like it's, it's sneaky. It's, it's really sneaky. We don't even realize. And, and, and even, even when we start to have a, a sense that, okay, maybe greed is creeping in here, we immediately rationalize and justify our decision. I've got a really good reason I need to keep that little bit of extra for myself in case of a rainy day. And we all know somebody else who we might say, oh, maybe somebody else's group, but surely not me, right? Surely not me. Well, what is greed fundamentally? But not believing that God wants to bless us and give generously and provide for every single one of our needs. It's not receiving his blessing, but instead it is taking to make sure that I don't lose it. Do you see the difference? Sin occurs quite simply when we take instead of receiving. And when we take the prerogative of deciding what is good and what is evil. And there's a consequence. In Genesis 3, the language is, God calls it a curse. Now, let me be quick to point out this out, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with this, but I think there's, there's more to it than even I realize here. In Genesis 3, God never curses Adam and Eve. He never curses his people. He curses the serpent, and he curses the ground, interestingly, and we're going to look at both of those. But he never curses Adam and Eve. 
So first, let's look at the nature of a curse, and let's, let's look at how it affects us. What is the curse? Fundamentally, and I know this is a little bit abstract, a curse is just when God allows the consequences of our sin to play out. The curse is when God essentially says, you want to do things your way, you insist on doing your things your way, okay, have it your way. And we quickly realize that we're not nearly as capable as we thought we were. And we're a lot more short-sighted than we realized. I think they've changed their graphics now, but do you remember, um, remember the heritage plumbing trucks that you used to see like five years ago and before that? I love these trucks. And again, they've changed and rebranded, and that's a real shame. If you don't remember, I'll, I'll remind you. Uh, there was a woman right on the side of a truck, just a very normal kind of suburban-looking woman, and her arms are folded, and she has this expression on her face that says, I told you so. And the caption above it just said, Honey, just call Heritage. <laughs> you remember these? Honey, just call Heritage. You should have left this up to a professional, Honey. And instead, you tried to do the plumbing yourself and you ended up with all sorts of leaks and a flooded basement or, you know, whatever. I don't mean to be blithe about sin, but like, we should have left this up to somebody who knows what he's doing. And instead, we try to do it ourselves, And we end up with leaky pipes and holes and cracks in the foundation and Actually, four chapters later, a flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. The curse is not something that God actively does as though God wants to bring down the hammer. The curse is just when God says, fine, as you insist, have it your way. So when one person takes credit for another person's work, what's the curse? Well, one, a team disintegrates. A team that used to be built on trust and that got good work done now fractures because nobody trusts any, each other and the whole thing just falls apart. And people's reputations suffer because word always gets out. The curse when we're not generous with our money, what is, what is that curse, by the way? Isn't it nice to have a little bit extra? Well, the problem is, the more we take, the more we feel like we never have enough. Ecclesiastes 5 puts it in such a perfect, pithy way. It just says, whoever loves money never has enough. And we see the flip side of the same coin in Proverbs 11, which teaches us that a generous person will prosper. And whoever refreshes others will himself or herself be refreshed. You see, the curse is simply when the consequences of our sin inevitably start to take hold. We insisted on taking rather than receiving. Here's how God describes the curse in Genesis 3. This is a few verses later. First, he tells Eve, well, first he curses the serpent. We're going to come back to that. Then he tells Eve, part of the curse of sin is this, childbirth is going to hurt women, can I get an amen? Now, isn't it something God gives, the very first task God gives humans is what? Be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number and fill the earth. And our very job 
is now affected by the curse, that in order to do what God calls us to do, it's going to hurt. There is joy, yes, don't get me wrong, but pain, pain that I can't and don't even want to imagine. He tells Adam a similar version of the same thing, by the way. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. And now through painful toil, you will eat food from the ground and the ground will produce thorns and thistles. The job God gives Adam in Genesis 2 is to work the garden and to keep it. Adam is a gardener. And now the garden is full of weeds and thorns and thistles. Adam, your job too is going to hurt. And not only is each of your jobs going to hurt as you go about the hurt of your... And by the way, that can be figurative if you're not a gardener. Okay, we know the thorns and thistles of work just through, through an impossible coworker or a customer who refuses to pay or an overbearing and unreasonable boss. It's like this, again, we're going to talk more about this next week. It's not only in each their own spheres, but also in their relationship. As he tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And that Hebrew word can also mean against. Your desire will be against your husband. I find that more helpful. And he will rule over you. Now, Adam and Eve were originally designed as equals in every way. And there are obvious differences in gender, but, but, but co-equal. It's not as though men are better or higher than women. And yet now, because of the curse, husbands and wives will sin against each other fundamentally when they take. When they try to take power, or when they try to take control, when they try to take or insist on having the last word in an argument, so on and so on, you see? And the final curse is death. This is the one that God has warned us about. He says, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. Now remember, God's intent is to bless us and to bless is to give, to give. It's generous. And the richest gift with which God can bless us is life. He intends for our life to come from him. Which is why in Genesis 2, it says that God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Now, that word breath in Hebrew, and this works in Greek too, and interestingly enough, that word breath is the same as the word spirit. So when God breathed into Adam's nostrils and into our nostrils, he breathed his spirit into us. But instead of receiving his life, we insist on taking it. Not taking life as in killing people, but taking our own life, controlling our own life, dictating how our own life will go. And because true life can only come from God, because true life can only come from God, when we refuse his life and instead try to manufacture it on our own, we're actually choosing death. That's what that means. When you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And because God is loving and because God is not a slave master and because he has made us in his image with the ability to make decisions, God lets us choose death. 
but he makes a way out. Now, there's both a short-term mercy and a long-term mercy here. The short-term mercy we'll just address quickly. Uh, there are actually two things. One, God says you will surely die, and then they eat the fruit, and they don't die. He delays it. And it says that when they, when they uh, uh, ate the fruit, they realized that they were naked, and we don't have time to get into that. But they sew, little, they sew fig leaves together to make clothing for themselves. Now, because we all know that vegan clothes don't last, God gives them what? He gives them leather, animal hides, clothes that will actually protect them in the world and against the elements. He's showing mercy. But let's look at the longer-term mercy as we start wrapping up. And this comes from the curse that we've not talked about yet. God curses the ground, but before he curses the ground, he curses Satan. At the end of God's curse over Satan, listen to what he says. And he's talking to Satan, to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, hatred, I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That woman, Eve, he's telling Satan this, that woman is going to have an offspring. And God promises that that offspring will crush the head of the evil one. And Satan will strike his heel. I don't know what it's like to be, to be bit by a snake in your heel. I bet it hurts. I bet it feels absolutely crippling. Satan will deal the offspring of the woman a crippling blow. But in so doing, he will ensure his own death as the Son of Man crushes the head of the serpent. There is a curse. And we're all affected by it. We feel that. But Jesus Christ, the offspring of that woman, endured the consequence of that, of that curse. He was bit in the heel by the serpent. He was dealt a crippling blow on the cross and experienced death, the deepest curse, hell itself on our behalf so that the curse could be broken. And he didn't only endure the, the curse. It, it actually goes deeper than that. Otherwise, the curse would still have breath in its lungs. In Galatians 3, Paul teaches us this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What is the curse? It's just the consequence for our sin, which is death. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung from a tree. Somehow, in his death, Jesus not only took that curse upon us, but he became the curse for us. And the tree, the tree in the center of the garden that was meant to be a symbol and a, a giver of life became an object of death as Jesus hung on a tree. And Jesus Christ, as he hung on that tree, reversed the curse and became the curse so that he could make the tree, once again, a source of life. 
the cross, the agent of death has become our life. Do you see? Jesus never sinned. He never took. He only received from his Father. He's the only person who ever lived who never should have tasted that curse. And he didn't only taste it, he became it so that we might be set free from the curse. You see what's going on? This is incredible. Right on page three of your Bible. Back to Galatians 3 where Paul explains it. Right after it says Jesus became the the curse for us, Paul explains, he says, he redeemed us in order that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit. Remember the Spirit, the same word as the breath of life which God breathed into our lungs. God intended to give Adam life. Adam chose death and he has given us life again through faith in Christ by giving us his Spirit. It comes simply by understanding and trusting that Jesus Christ became the curse for us so that God's spirit of life might become our life. Or as the great great Christmas carol goes, verse four, no more, listen to this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Sound familiar? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Amen.